0: History lecture eighty nine. As likewise today, we're going to get mystical. The uh, Kabbalah and all of Jewish mysticism dates all the way back from you know to Bria Sa'olam. as we see the the themes of Kabbalah um, go deeply, deeply into Meisabrachius into the matters of creation. Um, but in the sixteenth century, there is on par with all the other developments in the world that we've been talking about, the Renaissance and the Messianism of the day and the, uh, the the geographical exploration, the spirit of exploration of the day, there is an explosion of interest in Kabbalah, arguably as never before. It coincides with what we talked about last week, the explosion of interest in Halakha and trying to understand how we live a life in the world uh, in the practical sense. Um, and they're not they're not at odds with one another because as far as we're concerned in Torah, um, there is an inherent relationship between Halacha and Kabbalah. The way we behave in the world, the cause effect of our daily performance directly influences our ability to reach great spiritual lofty heights. It's the other religions, let's say you picture Eastern religions, the Guru off commuting with nature on the mountaintops, who understand that spirituality is dissociating yourself with this world in order to attain heights of spirituality, but as far as we're concerned, the heights of spirituality are predicated on your being a master of all four Turim of the Shulchan Aruch and the, the sometimes seemingly nitty-gritty mundane here and now, but nothing is mundane. You take the mundane and you elevate it to the spiritual by performing halacha. But what if there is things that, that they has to become? I don't know what you're asking. Uh, what if Kabbalah uh, goes against uh, Halacha? Yeah. So, generally speaking, where if there's, well, you're, you're ahead of me, but where the, the general approach is where there are elements in Kabbalah that do not conflict. So, often, let's say the Magin Abraham is known for bringing the Arizal, and when there's nothing conflicting, it becomes incorporated in the Halacha. And when there is a conf- conflict, then certainly our mainstream of what we call Shas and Poskim. The, uh, the Gemara and all the Halacha as developed by the Rishonim and then later the Achronim, certainly give the authoritative view and rarely, rare would you find an actual contradiction you might find something that's not quite in sync well like with uh uh in the Ghmar and, Shas, yeah. and the grandpa brings it down, he says that you make the shuvah over everything. Mm-hmm. But the Zohar says specifically that there's certain sort of things that you never have. So you have to understand what that Zohar means. <coughs> <coughs> it needs some parshanutics to, to to often there are ways of reconciling the two different sources. There I'm certain of it, and other places too. Uh now that we know that the Shulchanaruch has been and again, it's gone literally viral around the world with the printing press, making practical halacha so much more accessible to the common person. Um, the Zohar suddenly becomes available. It's been available. Remember, Rav Moshe de Leon had published it a couple centuries earlier. Uh, I was looking at a, at a very good safer on Kabbalah that was citing all primary sources, of the Ramak, or Chaim Vital, all things you're about to learn today. Um, who were giving different theories about how the Zohar came out. None of them mentioned the theory that the legend that I brought in here about the Rahman discovering it, but uh, that it was hidden. There's a story that, the, um, that Arabs had it and didn't realize what it was and were selling it uh, you know, as, as so much shoe, scrap, shoe leather s- scraps and, and whatnot until somebody finally discovered it or was brought to a Jewish scholar who recognized its, its significance. Um, now, in addition to having the Zohar, though, in the 16th century, particularly, you have the rise of this phenomenon of people who can adapt it and then make it suddenly accessible to explain its meanings, to decipher the uh, the inner dimension, and that's new. That's new because the Kabbalah, by definition, is something that's not for the average person. It's not that accessible. The Zohar is a hard book to understand. Like you say, you know, like it said, it made certain declarations of the Zohar, but what does that mean practically? Now you have individuals, giants, really, who come about and, and start to explain, you know, how it all comes together. You going to say something before? I talked it out you? No, well, I, I said what I, I said. What I wanted to say in the Maharal. even though he was also a, very much involved in Kabbalah, much, much. much we said his um, one of his virtues was the ability to take complex Kabbalistic ideas and render them in simple, accessible terms. But he's not the only one doing this. Now, all of this you remember coincides. We mentioned this last week too. That the, in 1553, this papal bull that had prohibited learning Talmud. Right, all this, is, all this comes out just at the time when the study of Kabbalah becomes increasingly popular and now you can't learn Talmud, so you've got a great replacement in the form of Kabbalah in Italy and, in else, and elsewhere as well. Um, now we also know, and this is going to be something to, that, that will be plaguing the Jewish people, is that Kabbalah in the wrong hands can be lethal. Uh, and that's why, and increasingly we're going to find, as <coughs> in the past, um, Kabbalah being <coughs> misused leads to um, tra- tragedies um, and, uh, and corruptions and, con- and con- uh, corrupt figures, the most famous, of course, being who will misuse Kabbalah in the worst possible way? Shabtai right, Shabtai Tzvi, but not just him. It's with this in mind that later authorities like the Shah, bring a tradition that you've probably heard before, that um, it's forbidden to learn uh, Kabbalah unless, among other requirements, you have to be 40 years old. You've heard such an idea before? Um, Some people incorrectly say that there's no such background for an idea. Well, the shach is certainly a reliable source for such an idea. Clearly, however, not everybody agrees with it, and that's evident in the fact that... um, some of history's most important, preeminent kabbalists learned it at a much younger age, in their teens, as we're going to meet. Among okay. them, the Rizal himself, and the Ramchal, and the Vilna Gaon. No, but the reason why they say forty is because that's about the age so, a uh, Jew gets when you when, when, when you knows that level of Torah. For sure. And for sure. I mean, they're, they're, we hear it's the like, idea. It's age, it's no, 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 no question. Sure. Daniel, you're right. A lot of this intuitively feels right to us when they say <laughs> that it has to be at be forty and you have to have mastered shots in Meaning you can't just be, not every Madonna can, go, can pick themselves up and suddenly immerse themselves in, uh, in, in Kabbalistic study. You know what you're talking about. It's, the way I describe it sometimes is um, people who lack, let's say, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a degree in engineering can take out an engineer's, an engineer's manual and pretend they understand what's going on, but they have no clue really without all the prerequisites. So much the same applies to Kabbalah, um, study of Kabbalah. And Daniel, you're right, evidently. And and of course we understand that there are brilliant individuals we call a prodigy, I an mean, Louis, who is able to do that like the Ariza, like the Ramcha, like the Vilnagot, at a at a much younger age. Now now let's i am going to talk about Kabbalah. I do not pretend to be a Makubal or even somebody who really is that learned beyond uh, I think what is as the, in the spirit of this soul class what I, would, what I would argue is, is basic Jewish knowledge level. What are these concepts? What are the major and broad strokes uh, ideas behind that? And with that in mind, I'm gonna give you some basics in Kabbalah uh, as they emerge and as increasingly people will, um, will learn this, this material in the 16th century and beyond. Uh, Let's go back to the fundamentals. The Kabbalah goes back to the fundamentals. Um, It goes back to the use of the Hebrew language, since remember the Hebrew language, Lashon HaKodesh, in its original iteration, that's Hashem's own language that he used to create the world itself. And he considered the properties of that language. You know, we say the word light, and by saying the word light, I'm using a code word, a symbolic word, to convey Oh, yeah, right. That's that shiny red, excuse me, yellow or white thing that comes out that illuminates our room. Uh, But we know that the word light, L-I-G-H-T, only signifies, it doesn't embody the essence of light. But when we have the word oh in Hebrew, in Lashon HaKodesh, that conveys the same idea, or both symbolizes what light is as a frame of reference that we can use, and it also is the essence of life. That's why in Kabbalah, famously, we can break down the letters of the concept and show the inevitable um, meaning, or and, and the multi-layered meaning in the letters themselves, in the numerical value in the letters. Uh, those of you familiar with uh, this is one of my favorites. That's why I repeat it. But uh, with, 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 the, with the word about Ish and Isha, when you the difference between the man and the female based on the Gemara and Sota, Ish is aleph, Yud Shin, Isha is aleph, Shin Hay. Uh, the difference between them is the man <laughs> has a Yud and the woman has a Hay. Those letters on so many levels embody the essence of the sit, what the Kabbalists call the Sitra de Dukhra and the Sitra de Nukhva. Who remembers this? I did this in the marriage Chubura. Um the, the female side, the male side, the Yud, symbolic of the seed, the spark that, male, that men bring to the world, both physiologically, and spiritually the hay is really a dalid with the yud in its center the dalid of course being this world because the dalid itself is composed of a of two Vovs, Picture a dalet, right? It's two vav's, which means the four different directions. That's this world, and it's the woman who's very much. Her tasks are very much in this world. She takes with her dalet energy. She takes that yud, the he, the yud of the seed of the male, and she nurtures it, as it were, literally and figuratively, in her womb to create a new seed, a new life. And we're just getting started with this in terms in terms of the layers of meaning. So the the, in Lashon HaKodesh, we're talking about Kabbalah today in history, because we're in the 16th century, and this is where the whole thing breaks open. And um, we understand that when Hashem, say, hold the thought for just a moment, Karak, when Hashem says, oh, he actually creates oh. In other words, by saying the word itself, that somehow moves mountains, somehow somehow, literally the, the, the world uh, vibrates and, and the, the thing comes into existence. Um, that's why when people write the Kabbalists, some of them, uh, not the phony variations that is very common nowadays, but the genuine article of, of Kabbalists, when they write the word Chaim, or ultimately they write one of a Kodesh Baruch whose holy names, um, they actually can create new life. I just happened to learn just now that Mar in Sanhedrin, uh, the the in uh, Sanhedrin, something we mentioned here before too. Rava wrote one of Hashem's names and placed it, he used the Sefer Yitzira as a guide to figure out how to create a human being. And he created the equivalent of a golem like Maharal's, a non-existent golem, and um, and created a life. Only one thing that um, people can't do, only Hashem can do. <coughs> do you remember what happened? What's Rava's <coughs> golem lacking? And incapable of doing, and the reason why Rebbe Zehra figures out that it's a golem and not a real person? Speech. Speech. It lacks speech. It's domin. It's not, It's not. it can't, can't speak. And uh, our ability to speak, to use words, is our ability to be like and um, we can use words and a golem can't use words. Um, to a large degree, and I'm going to try without, I, I hope I'm not oversimplifying matters by doing this because it's, obviously there's a lot more going on, but if we can, Imagine, and those of us who've been going together, the mindset of a Jew 500 years ago, living in the wake of the Spanish expulsion, uh, adrift in the world. Either they're persecuted up in France or Germany or in some fringe place around the, Me- the Mediterranean basin where they're living, or they're back in Israel, or they're among the, S- the Spanish refugees moving around the world. Right now, the Jews are collectively traumatized. And Kabbalah, unmistakably, addresses many, many of their issues that maybe a couple centuries earlier were not as burning, and now they have to understand. Kabbalah addresses um, questions that try to understand how, why is there suffering in the universe? Why can Qal Yisrael endure these kind of cataclysms, these, these huge traumas like the Spanish Inquisition and expulsion? And, and what does it all mean? How do you take, and it takes us back to something primal, like the what in Kabbalistic terms is called the Ein Sof, which is infinite, the infinite power. And then how does a Kadish Baruch take this Ein Sof and then somehow convey it in our very limited world? These are questions that are, that, and I'm gonna get to this, that are very much in the front and center of the Makubalim's minds and how we try to explain things. Um, how, along the same lines, do we explain if, if Hashem creates the world with uh, ingredients of infinity, how is there evil in a world that's predicated on goodness, that's, that's, that's based on the Kaddish Baruch Hu's, uh, he puts his own imprint in the world, and then put that in historical context. It's one thing if we were asking these questions, let's say we were in the middle of Galos Bavel, as we were a couple of months ago. And we, we, we asked the questions, but there the questions weren't just pressing because we knew there was gonna be ghosts, it was still the days of prophecy, there was an explanation, it was also finite, seventy years. And we went back and start, and rebuilt the second temple. But now it's not just 70 years, it's been about 1200 years and counting and hundreds of years keep passing and there doesn't seem to be a clear end in sight. And you remember back in the cave where Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, I'm learning with Eliyahu Navi and they get this question on the pigeons, on the pigeons, uh, tied to the pigeon of, of trying to understand the Klala in Parsha's Kisavo. And what does it mean? The present gallus that doesn't seem to have any divrei nochama. No words of comfort and no parent end. And Eliyahu's response, do you remember? <laughs> Elial responds and, and sends this by <laughs> way of Rabbi Shemar Yochai. He says... Um, he says... It's okay. Uh, before saying, uh, the, uh, he says that there are divir nechama, but very much like this Golis, everything is hidden. And you have to understand it inside. It's hidden in the, And then he brings several psukim to explain how that's how indeed it's hidden, but it's all there. And Akadosh Baruch who loves us to pieces. And so the secretive nature of Kabbalah, the hidden nature, the fact that this is the fourth level of the, pshaw, of, of, of the pardes, the secret um, level, is very much the essence of, <laughs> um, of Kabbalah. Now, you know, this is critical. The Jews would know how to sustain hope during this cruel golos with no apparent end in sight, um, with olam Hazeh completely unstable, uh, these questions are, are suddenly in the forefront of everybody's minds, Barack. Uh, so two questions. One, uh, but, but you can't do the alphabet trick with any language. Though? No, you can't. Really? Okay. That's the whole vort of that's, that's the of of gematria um, of um, of many of the letter. The, the statistical probability is, is, is not there. I mean, like the imagery, though, like the Egyptians, they, they, they had images. So. They do, they do, but it's it's limited. It's not the essence of the thing. And we did a whole vortner at the beginning of this class. We talked about the breakdown of the olive base per se. Right. Only the olive base is every letter means something. Definitely. In other languages, they don't mean anything. They're seemingly, obviously, ripoffs of olive base. And then we talked about the Greek languages when you have the 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 you all the different characters they don't mean anything but they're very similar to the hebrew characters oh and then my uh, second question is uh they're answering the same questions that uh the jewish philosophers questions they their got got right this is a purely jewish <laughs> Uh, level the philosophers dabbled in Aristotle and now, others. I mean, you can see what I mean. Rambam did I mean people say that he did, but mainly his stuff was pretty But pretty it was small, very much and we're gonna talk about soon the contrast between the Kabbalistic approach and the Rambam's approach. The Rambam's what we call rationalist approach, very much putting things in terms of the here and now and every day that we understand Kabbalah changes all of that. Kabbalah challenges that and says no there's so much more going on that's not rational. That's not of the here and now. Um, Kabbalists are the ones who talk about, uh, talk in terms of reincarnation of the soul. Gilbal Neshamos, and in terms of uh, focusing on the big picture. Um, In this this universe, very much connected to the point that we started class today, with the whole connection, the interplay between Halafa and Kabbalah. That, you know, what I do directly pertains to the way the world is. And it's the Kabbalists who say, you know, it was the original primal sin that sends the world into a. Into, it knocks the world off its course. Later, you remember that the flood will further knock the world off its course. Remember that everything used to be a perfect vernal equinox, and then the equator, the whole world is turned, turned sideways. All of that comes down to our sin. And so there is an immense cause effect relationship. Kabbalists, among other things, see the world and see history in a linear way. So that there's a beginning, there's a middle, and an end. Now that may sound like a really self ob- self-evident, self obvious kind of a statement, but you realize that most of the world does not live life as <laughs> if history is linear. <coughs> most people have an attitude, and se- definitely this is the prevalent attitude in the secular society today, of nihilism that arose as arose as arose, arose, and we're all kind of doomed in history, and repeats itself, and what do you hope to do and accomplish in this world? Uh, the best you can hope is to eke out a few good years, have, get your kicks, have a little bit of um, sensual gratification uh, before before you inevitably suffer what all humans have to suffer and the miserable slings and arrows of whatever life sends you before you are eaten by so many worms, right? That's that's the, that's the general attitude. It comes to the kabbalistic and of course the Jewish attitude, which is no no no. Behave today. Fix <coughs> your midos today. Work on work on what you're doing um, because we're we're bringing gula. And we can actually bring kabbali. We can bring the final redemption and Mashiach even ahead of time if we if we perfect ourselves. And you find these themes in every aspect of life. Um, we know that in sfas, there's where they're learning Kabbalah in a, in in a, in a um, arguably in the most since the days of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the most focused, um, a prominent way than than we found in in twelve hundred years. Um, they, um, they focused on midos. They focused on individual tikkun and collective tikkun. One of them in Hagim and is that they, um, they would gather on Erev Shabbos and they would have what we would call collective musr sessions, where people talked about their midos and how they could do better. Um, their idealists create the perfect halophic <laughs> society and the, and, and the idealistic... Um, society of People with Good Midos Many, many legends I tell some of them when we, got, we walk around Spass, um, uh About the great Mekubalim, for example one of, the, one of the figures is a rav By the name of Avram Galanti Part of the famous Galanti family Mekubalim and scholars, all of them Anyway, he was also, he was also the wealthy man Of, of, of Spas and functioned as we would call Like the mayor And the story goes as once he went in To the Arizal who, Remember the Arizal could do what Shlomo Melech could do he read foreheads, because the essence of a person's neshama was somehow found if you knew if you were the Rizal, you could find it there. And he said that Rav Galanti had theft on his forehead, to which Rav Galanti was traumatized. How could this be? And this is a person who's completely above and beyond suspicion. He's not a thief in any way. He he ran a textile business. And so the legend has it that he went to all of his friends and all of his neighbors and everybody who had connections with, do I owe you money? Have I ever stolen from you? And of course, the answer was no. He gathered all of his employees and he said, I'm going to leave on this table a big pile of coins. And if anybody here feels that I owe money, please, I'm going to leave the room. Help yourself. And the story goes, an old albana, an old widow, felt, you know, she was the one who took the two coins. And later on, the story came out. They asked her, you know, so Rav Galanti stole these two coins from you? And she said, no, no, chas v'sholom. So they said, but you took the coins. Why did you take the coins? And she explained, she said, well, I, um, I've i always worked very uh, very long and hard hours uh, for Rav Avram, and he's a great boss, and he always pays me very generously. But in the back of my mind, it occurred to me that... Um, as a, as a seasoned veteran worker, it may be due to me to have maybe just a symbolic token, couple, point, couple coins more than my coworkers, but I would never ask for it because I don't think I really deserve it. But when he called us in here and made this pronouncement that maybe he owes somebody money, I figured, what's a tzaddik? How could a tzaddik ever make such a request unless somehow he read my mind? And therefore, I assumed that he did read my mind and must have been talking to me. And he responded, yes, of course you're right, and you should take those coins. So what's great in the story is, aside from the, the, the reading of the foreheads, which does have the mystical aspect to it, you also have a, a picture of a society of people who are focused on what we would consider the nitty-gritty, the mundane. The you know, Do I owe you money? Is there anything between us that's not completely on the up and up? That's the nature of this world, of these individuals. They're very much of this world. They're people we can relate to as human beings, um, and simultaneously they're living this very lofty kind of a lifestyle. <clears throat> By the way, Rav Galanti is the same man who um, the Arizal says that he could achieve a kapara, a complete atonement, if he takes this old tomb that sat over the Rashvi's cave, Rav cave, and he built a nice respectable building <coughs> over it. The basis, <coughs> the basis of the building that stands there today is actually from the days of the 16th century where Galanti set the foundation there. Same person. Um, the Rambam's view of Mashiach, talks about this world not really changing, the only difference when Mashiach comes is we'll have time to sit and learn Torah, uh, but that the physical realities are not gonna be that different. Sometimes people interpret it as, as a shtickle, dry and technical. Um, It's not always what the people in this world want to hear who are weary of exile and the the ongoing persecutions. Kabbalah is so much more enticing, so much more attractive for these these generations. Mashiach feels tangible. When you talk in Kabbalistic terms, you see the cause effect to the point that I could potentially bring Mashiach. course, this has the positive, that positive reaction, uh, result, there's also a negative that come from this. Um, in this kind of climate, when people are more Kabbalistically focused, um, you're leaving the door wide open for corrupt, false messianic figures, as we already saw in these days, there were some messianic figures, they weren't so destructive though. David Ruvaini, with all of his, we, we met him last week, with all of his... Uh, all of his whimsy and uh, far-fetched stories, he didn't necessarily wreak such havoc, but we haven't yet met Shabtai Tzvi. That's, com- that's coming in a few days. And 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 people like Shabtai Tzvi, especially with Kabbalah, now very much in people's minds, we um, could very easily manipulate them, capture the popular imagination, Uh But again, the positive is now Jews are more aware of how, you know, by being middach, they can mitzvahs, they can hasten the messianic era. Um, You know that this whole revolution, especially what was going on in Spot, has all kinds of, I'm going to give you just a few examples, but it influenced and changed the way Klai Yisrael lived, big and small, in so many different ways. I'm just going to cite a few new minhagim that broke out of the map that were not practiced before, and today we take them as if, uh, the Jews have been doing this for thousands of years. Anybody know what I'm thinking of? What are examples of minhagim that we never did before? And in this generation in Spot, uh, all these things broke out and became, became established, not just in Spot, but around the world. Kabbalah Shabbos. Even though we know the Gemara talks about Rabbi Yana going out in special garments, white garments, and greeting the 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 kala, Lachadodi L'Kras Kala, right? But uh, whatever that he is doing there, the um, the uh, but the idea of a formal Kabbalah Shabbos with actually the famous piyut that we sing, the centerpiece Lachadodi itself being written by one of great Mekubalim, Rav Shlomo who we're about to meet. Um, all that started in Sfas. Um, the of welcoming a new guest every night of 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 uh, um the Upsherin where the uh, the boy is given a haircut only after the, at the age of three, uh, making Hakafos and Simchas Torah dancing around the uh, the Torah and Simchas Torah dates back to <coughs> Um having a seder for Tubishvat is Kabbalistic, uh, the staying up all night Tikun Leil is from is from the machaber back in Sfas. Um, and then Lagba Omer the procession to Meiron and, the, and, and the, the events, the bonfires and so on, the Hilula that's made around Rebbe uh, is Yochai, also comes back very clearly and decisively to Tzvas. Now, one of the first figures to talk about then in this revolution, this Kabbalistic revolution, is uh, really the first person who gives a, a learning Kabbalah a systematic approach. His name is Rav Moshe Ben Yaakov Cordovero. Um, he's referred to as the Ramak. The Ramak, Rav Moshe Cordovero. Cordovero, back in these days, last names. We'll talk about the advent of last names, why everybody today has a last name, where that comes from. Jews had lots of last names, but they weren't used the same way we do today. Cordovero, in his case, Cordova. He came from Cordova in Spain, and so he was called the Cordovero, the one the one of or whose family originates in Cordova. He was... <laughs> He actually didn't live a long life. He was 1522 to 1570. I I note, and I don't have a full explanation for this, but just in the back of my mind, I think about many of these figures that we associate specifically with Kabbalah, seem to have lived, many of them, a very short life. I mean, we notice that a lot of our big Tzaddikim actually have, originally said they have extremely long lives, but um, here, you know, he lives to 48. 48 years old um, He was only a teenager When he received smicha from Remember the story last week Who did he get smicha from Rav Yaakov Beirav Remember the whole story with smicha Re-instituting re, re, smicha um, At 25 He was spoken to by a basko. basko an echo of the heavenly voice Who urged him to study Kabbalah uh, He did so with his brother-in-law Rav Shlomo Alkabetz the author of the uh, It's Rav Shlomo who tells us about a certainly heavenly voice, the, the Magid's approach to Kabbalah. Um, and he produces, the Ramak produces the first complete approach to Kabbalah. His m- most famous books are, anybody know this? Do you know Ramak? Okay, Just curious if, if you're familiar with this. He's very big. He, he has two major books, Pardis Rimonim and Oryakar, um, they are less comprehensive than the arizal's approach the Arizal's obviously coming next um but what he does and it's a, an absolute innovation is he takes lofty complex ideas in kabbalah and puts it in his, in terms that his very rationalist generation, because the generation is very much into aristotle you don't know even want to talk about aristotle Aristotle is explaining things in terms that I can understand here and now given the physical properties of the world. So that was the way the world was in the 16th century. So he takes lofty ideas in Kabbalah, which are anything but rational, and he puts it in terms a rationalist can think of, can understand. Um, in 1550, around that year, he, he, makes, he establishes the Yeshiva, and this is also unprecedented, where they study Kabbalah. And in the Yeshiva, the legend has that Eliyahu Navi revealed himself. Ramak is still a big deal. Anybody who learns Kabbalah is usually very familiar with him. It just was, uh, was overshadowed by the Arizal. The Arizal the will come and, uh, and not make it obsolete, but certainly um, upstage it. There's some great figures. Some of his students, the Remak, uh, had a student named Rav Eliyahu de Vidas who wrote a book called The Rashi's Chochmah, a major book in Kabbalah. He would move down to Hebron later. Um, and Rav Chaim Vital, Here's something that's a little tricky, people will get this. Rav Chaim Vital was a student of the Raman, and a great Makubal in his own right. And even though he was much older than the Arizal, he was the Arizal's primary disciple. Does that make any sense? Okay, sometimes you can have a young person who becomes the teacher himself, and Rav Chaim Vital will become his disciple. Uh, okay. Let's get to the let's get, let's cut to the chase. Rav Yitzchak ben Shlomo Luria is the Rezal <laughs> and talk about efficient lives. He lives between 1534 and 1572. You do the math, that's 38 very short but very impactful years. The Ari is uh, is explained the its abbreviation Ha'eloki Rabbeinu Yitzchak, the divinely inspired our Rabbi Yitzchak ben Luria. Who actually is born in Yerushalayim. Have you been to the Arizal Shul in Yerushalayim? Yeah. It's today, it's part of the Yeshuvah, some the museum of the Yeshuvah Yashan, uh, just up above uh, Chabad Street in the Jewish quarter. You know, it's that and then the Or Chaim. Or Chaim as well. Or Ha'chaim. Yeah. Right, correct. Who comes a, couple centu- uh, right. a century and a half afterwards. Correct. I mean, it's okay. tiny. These are yeah. tiny places, and they're based on traditions that that's where the Arizal lived. There, there's reason to question them because he was very young. when um, he, His father was Polish Ashkenazi. His mother was Sephardi. One of the reasons for the enduring appeal and impact of the Arizal is because everybody claims him as their own. Everybody feels that he, you know, he had something to teach uh, from, from all different factions of the Jewish people. Um, what can you say about him? He, uh, his father died when he was a child, and he left and went down to Egypt. So how long he was in Jerusalem and if we actually know where he was is, is, is a question. Um, generally, his approach to Kabbalah is the approach that anybody who learns Kabbalah today is at least familiar <laughs> with, or if not, they, they study it entirely. Um, one of the challenges is his teachings are scattered. He never preserved them systematically. They come to us by way of his students, Rav Chaim Vital. He goes down to Egypt... He's raised by a wealthy uncle. Um, he marries his cousin at the age of fifteen. Jews can do that. you Marry a cousin. First cousin's fine. The uh, he learns from Rav Kolonimus. He also learns from Rav Bitzala Ashkenazi, who we met, who was the Shitum wrote one of the great works that incorporates many otherwise lost books. Um, and he actually co-writes the Shitum Mikubetzet with the with Rav Bitsala. His major rav was the Radbaz, who we met last week. When he was 22 years old, he, Im- he became totally immersed in the study of the Zohar. And within a short period, um, understands that he needs to completely seclude himself. And so for seven years, on the banks of the Nile River... He has what's called his bodidus, which is still a practice that's central in for Kabbalah uh, for people who study Kabbalah, which means seclusion. During the seven years, he learns with Eliyahu Na'vi. We see we see some of the major <coughs> figures in history associated with mysticism learned with Eliyahu Na'vi. Uh, not just not just Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, but remember the the Kabbalists, the Hasidic Ashkenaz and Rabbi Arizal. Um, he would visit his family on Shabbos. And when he was home, he rarely spoke. And near the end, in 1570, Elia Navi says, now it's time for you to leave Egypt, go to Eretz Yisrael, and it's time for you to deliver your Torah. You're going to find a student there. His name is Raphaim Vital, And um, you're supposed to reveal both what's called the Torah, that what's Nigla and what's Nistar. What's revealed and what's hidden. Nigla, by the way, I meant to give this an opan earlier. Legalos le- um, le- 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 uh, is to reveal. It's also a uh, to reveal. So he's gonna, you, you have to teach your revealed and hidden Torah to Rav Chaim Vital, who um, in the less than... This is, this is uncanny. The Arizal lives for less than two years in Sfat before he passes away, and he does everything in that less than two-year period, including giving over the entire tradition to the student, to, to Rav Chaim Vidal. Now, either the day the Arizal got to the Sfat, or some say a few months later, the different versions of the story, Rav Moshe Cordovero dies. And, um, the Rizal's at the funeral. Either way, the Rizal's at the funeral. And suddenly, uh, the Ramak's Aron, is go- the, his coffin is going to the ground, and a massive pillar of fire appears above the Aron. And the Rizal turns to the people there, and he asks, what is that? And they don't know what he's talking about. And then he realizes he's the only one who sees it. And everybody understands that that's a sign that the as it were, the passing of the baton and the passing of the mantle of leadership, the Ramak, his great, his leadership in Kabbalah is now over and being passed along to the Arizal, who's going to almost supplant the Ramak. His impact is immense almost from the get-go. He starts saying Sheer and everybody's drawn to it. There was another unnamed Makubal, Kabbalist, who had actually been working, he'd learned under the Ramad, he'd been completing his own personal masterpiece of Kabbalah that he'd worked on and dedicated his entire life to. And this anonymous Kabbalist um, attends the Arizal Shir, comes home, takes his own personal manuscript that's the sum total of everything he's worked on in his life, and he puts it in the Hiniza. Puts it in Shamos. And his wife asked him, w- what are you doing? That's your work. And he said, the world doesn't need this now. The results in the world. They don't need my approach to Kabbalah. The Arisal's adequate for everybody. Um, we should have done that, though. Why is that? What if something happened? Like he accident. felt his approach was inferior and Torahs ultimately about I don't us. Know, I don't know. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, like, what if something happened to a It did two years later. He does. So what? Okay. He has confidence. He has confidence that the, the world's in better hands. They don't need my tire. Um, I, I love the story, especially it's about an anonymous person, how that, what kind of humility that would take to just take your whole life achievement and say, yeah, somebody else is better out there. You take him instead of me. Anvasonos, who are the three, the, the three great Anvasonim that the Gemara cites? Do you remember? Yonasan ben Shaul? Moses Anabicol Adam, for some reason he's not in it's that always list, strong, he's almost in his own category, analysis. right, right, okay, so fine, the Gemara list, those three, but it's this particular quality of where most people would vie for the glory and the greatness and the center stage, they say, like, Yonatan says, no, is better than me, let him be the king. The human the, the Right, right, very good. Rab Shimabingam Liel who says who, who refers to himself in very self-effacing terms, and before him the Bnebasera who gave way to Hillel. Right? So in the same spirit this this anonymous Makubal says, No, the world has the Erizal, that's good enough. That's good enough for the world. He uh, <coughs> the Mechaber, Rabbi Yosef Karo is near the end of his life. Rabbi Yosef Karo dies in in fifteen seventy-five. So the Rizal comes five years earlier, in, in, in 1570, and the Mechaber, Ravi Yosef Kara, would like to attend the um, public share of the Rizal, and the Rizal won't let him. And that's never explained. I have that from Rav David Gottlieb. A lot of these are subject to legend. I'm sure if Rav Gottlieb brings it, it has, it has a good uh, source. And it's, yeah, and uh, so be it. So whatever that means, the Rizal doesn't feel the Mechaber should come. Uh, one of his practices is he's focused on Kivrit Tzadikim. In fact, the whole subject of Kivrit Tzadikim takes on a whole new dimension under the Rizal. Uh He does what's called, he's Mizgarish. Rav Moshe Cordovero had actually wrote, written one of his books called The Sefer Girushin that describes the process, a Kabbalistic process of what you do by the Kivrit Tzadik. It's very intense and a common person should approach this with great fear and trembling. Uh, the Rizal was obviously a master at it. Uh, he went around and identified graves, and whereas many other traditions are suspect, to say the least, any place where we have a tradition through Rav Chaim Vital that the Arizal said, this is the place, mostly places in and around Svat are accepted across the board, where most of the Jewish world does not have traditions that are accepted on a unified level between Sephardi, Ashkenazi, Ch- Hasidish, Litvish, uh, where, where we have a tradition from the Arizal, it's, it's generally accepted, he, uh, he often moved Kibaret Tzidikim This is a whole top. This is another area of interest. Sure where. What's that? Well, so he was the one who he gave for the second one, right? No, so. no. The Rizal doesn't... There's no tradition about the Rizal um, saying anything about Rachel Imenu. No, most of his are around, in and around. But he would do things. He would move certain firing. There was an earlier tradition when the Rizal came that Rapinchas Ben Yair was up in Gush Chalab. but he said, that's a mistake. And he said, it's really at the foot of Tzfas and like that. There are a bunch, bunch of alternate things that he does. Um, he was capable of doing miracles. Many, many legends talk about his miracles of Chaim Vital's miracles. We talked about his reading foreheads. He was capable of, even though he wasn't a prophet, he, his predictions about the future seemed to come true. Um, here is a completely inadequate summary of some of the loftier ideas of the Rizal. I'm trying not to, I don't want to give it short shrift, but on the other hand, I want to give a taste. So here's a taste, Hashem is indivisible, Yichud Hashem, Hashem is one, but to reconcile Himself with the finite creation, the Arizal teaches that the first step in the act of creation, Maiseb is an act called radical simtsum. He contracts Himself. How familiar are you? So far, have I, have I spoken gibberish here? Is this all sounding familiar? Real in this, I great. So in what context? You were talking about that. how the world can exist God is everything. It, it's it. called like right? Right. Hey, oh, no, no, no. no. That's, that's pantheism. That's different. That's different. It, it's easily confused. And when we get the we'll so to Hasidus, we'll talk about. Pantheism yeah. Is, is dangerously close to this, but it's not this. Right. We right. say Hashem yeah. is one and unique. That's a different concept. But he creates this idea of radical tzimtzum. Of uh, really, what means contracting himself? Rabbi Ben Shushan spoke about this uh, to me about when I was asking him about Shabbos. Okay, because he was Tintu. saying that it's from himself that he. Uh, the, the one way that the Kabbalists describe it is: um, let's say a father wants to identify with his son. Uh, if he were just to sit on the floor and say and start talking talk to him and say, "Son, can I tell you about this Tosvos and then launch into on his own level whatever kind of discourse he wants to launch into, the son will simply look up at the little boy, will look up at his father and blink and not have any connection. Will not know what this, the father's talking about. If the, son, if the father really wants to connect, he has to get on the level with his son, see that the son is playing with whatever he's playing with and assume the language of the boy and contract himself, hold his essence back in order to make a relationship for the boy. That's what a Baruch Hu does with the creation of the world. Tsim Tsum is, ter- is the term, the Ein Sof, the infinite, in fact, fills all of reality. Uh, no elements are independent that can exist in reality. But with this Tzimtzum, suddenly you have a. And these are not to be taken literally. These are constructs. These are abstract ideas. A. But to put it in physical terms, at least we can picture something. Suddenly, with Tzimtzum, there's a void. Because if you contract yourself, you create a vacuum. So there's a vacuum called, in Kabbalistic terms, a halal, an open, an open space. And in that open space appear 10 kelim, 10 vessels called the spheros. I'm giving you some of the basic terms of Kabbalistic discourse without really going into the depth that would take us years. And of course, we all have to master Shas first anyway. But the spheros, these 10 spheros that you see depicted, let's say, in many of the Kabbalistic pictures, the 10 forms, each with a different name, they are best described as elements that harmonize and connect the physical finite with the infinite spiritual of Hashem. There's this, a manifestation in the physical suddenly appears a manifestation of the infinite called the Kav. Kav literally means a line. Um, now, the outer of the 10 spheres, the outermost spheres can take this infinite. You know, it's like if we heard suddenly Karach Baruch was speaking, right? Am couldn't hear it all in Harsinah exactly. It had to be filtered. So the outer spheres are somehow capable of hearing this Kav, of, of receiving this Kav, but the inner spheros cannot, whatever that means. Um, the six inner spheros burst. And with their bursting, all this happens simultaneously as Adam is sinning, And as they burst there's an immense light, you remember the ore from the creation, 36 hours of that light, that suddenly goes into hiding. We call it the ore haganus, the hidden light. And, the, and these inner six vessels all burst and shatter, and shvira sekeling, the, bra- the broken vessels, using terms that maybe may have, may have come up as you've learned, people talk about Kabbalistic ideas, the vessels are shattered, our job in this world is to reassemble them. Evil is introduced in this world through, the, through sin and through the shattering of these kalim, these, these, these vessels. And that's why um, we have one of the ingredients of life in this world, is, of humanity, is having freedom of choice, which of course then leaves the possibility of reward and punishment open. When we do the right thing, we've repaired the world, we've fixed the broken vessel, and then we're rewarded, and then the opposite's also true. There are four levels of the world. It's described in physical terms, but look at me for a second. It's in the physical world, but all of these are here simultaneously. You know, the only way I can abstract this and picture and say, "Oh, there is the olam asiah, this world, the action world." Then there's a loftier world of speech of yitzira. And then there's the loftier world of thought, of Bria, and the f- highest world of Atsilus and will. So inevitably, what I do is I elevate each of those and I send them out of my domain, but actually all four of those worlds are here simultaneously right now. We just don't see it. What's the ultimate link between the finite and the infinite in the way we, we, we experience the world? Is human beings. Because we're created in Salem Elohim. So we're the bridge. Um, we were all created as what's called nitzotzot sparks. We were all actually originally part. We were different organs in the first man. I'm almost done with this. This is this is not a typical class here. But we we, we uh, the goal of history is that people don't come out as ignoramuses. This is Judaism 101. So here's some Did basics of Kabbalah. This is, this is 101. This is definitely 101. <laughs> um, So, originally, do you know that we were all parts of Adam Arishon's body? Whatever that means. Now, just like in the body, there are superior organs and inferior organs. Um, So, too, in the world, there are superior souls and inferior souls, all of which became mixed up when Adam sinned. There's a big confusion down here. Um, This is... This is what appears on our forehead. The nature of the person, of the Neshama, appears in the forehead and is influenced in the course of a life. If you can perfect yourself and work on yourself, your forehead apparently reflects this. There is somebody in Makubal who apparently can look at a person's forehead in Yerushalayim and, and tell how many times he's gone through the Mesiel HaShisharim, the, uh, the path of the righteous by, by the Ramchal. Because somehow every time you go through the Celestia Sharm, you've upgraded yourself spiritually and that'll manifest itself on your forehead. I don't know if it's true, but I love the concept. Yeah. Uh, like, can they just do that by, like, if you looked at me versus if you looked at a great rabbi, he'd say, I mean, you've learned it probably zero times or one. You're saying because you just look at the person yeah, yeah. and the nature of the dress and apparently no. Apparently he really has it. Yeah, like That's what I'm saying. somebody like that nowadays claims it, I would be suspicious because there are a lot of charlatans out there too. This is the hokey pokey stuff that people, you know, hocus pocus stuff that people sometimes play with. But there are apparently, the real thing is out there, it's possible. Rav Zatzal was a major makubah, was capable of, of tremendous, tremendous uh, Kabbalistic um, accomplishments. The mixture will mean that the purest Kind of an neshama will also have evil klipos, evil evil elements called the klipos. Inferior neshamas also have goodness. Pay attention to this because we're going to talk about the breakout of chassidus. Chassidus will play up this play play up some of these themes in a major way. Um, when Mashiach comes, the confusion, all the admixtures will be resolved. Until Mashiach comes, the notion that Kabbalists accept, not everybody accepts this, is Gilgul Neshamos, reincarnation. The Neshamas are constantly reincarnating to, if we in a previous lifetime didn't do our job and fix what we need to, to fix, we have another opportunity to do so in later iterations, in, la- in later lifetimes. And all, um, the goal of every Neshama coming into this world is to, fix unique things in this world, within ourselves, within the world around us, that's why we're here, which in itself is a huge, powerful, uh, you know, we're talking in lofty terms, but I find this very here and now mundane, here, you know, uh, realistic. How do I take these ideas? It makes me realize, okay, you know, I have a problem in my life right now. You name it. Fill in the blanks in your own mind. What are your problems right now? Can you do everything to solve all the problems? Usually not but there usually are certain things that I can do. I can make tshuva, I can fix certain qualities, I can fix my own midos. That's what I should focus on. Kodesh Baruch wouldn't expect anything else from me. He doesn't expect me to accomplish the impossible, but there are, are quite a number of different possible things that we can, uh, we can work on and, and, are, and are supposed to do so. And of course, our ability to do that will change the world. Um, a few more points about the Arizal. The Arizal um, Wrote some team that we still have. He wrote a different nigun at the beginning of every three of the three Shabbos meals. Asad uh, sudosa. Have I taught you mine? I have a beautiful melody that goes back apparently as many, many seven, eight generations. Yerushalmi uh, melody for the Shabbos lunch. Asad eli that the, the Arizal wrote, he wrote a, a song called Yom Zeli Yisrael that many sing, there's a popular melody, Yom Zeli Yisrael, for the words are from the Yerizal. It was his practice to dress like Rabbi Yanai in, in a white four-fold, fourfold garment to signify Hashem's four-letter name. Um, Shabbos is obviously central in our existence, Kabbalistically, Shabbos is the embodiment of Kedusha in this finite Olam HaAsiyah. And of course, every mitzvah that you do all influence all four of the world simultaneously. If you look at, if you study di Rav Shlomo al masterpiece, you see that all these themes are mentioned. It's not just about Shabbos. I mean, it's certainly about Shabbos, but it's also about Geula and perfecting the world for Mashiach. We said that the Rizal will impact long-term, cross-sectors, Ashkenazi, Sephardi, um, are, are, are overlapping. Um, uh, he's going to influence the Misnagdim every bit as much as the Hasidim. Um, there are other figures also we see in this time, other Kabbalists who also seem to go back and forth between Ashkenazi and Sephardi. There's a, a, a less known figure, a Sephardi rav by the name of Sacher Susan, who wrote a book called Ibrushanim Utkufos. And he lived in Morocco and in Tzfas, and among other things, he's the earliest source for eating fruit on two which is, get this idea? It's the earliest source for eating fruit on two We don't have that, the Gemara doesn't talk about eating fruit on Tu He brings this down, he's a Sephardi Rav, and the Minag becomes a Minag Ashkenaz. Sephardi don't have this minhag from the Sephardi Rav, who's the earliest source for it. So you see increasingly uh, like a you know a, a hybrid, a mix between the two different worlds. Um, the Rizal himself wrote a peyush on part of the Zohar, and that's just about it. We don't have much in writing from him. We have his traditions. Uh, he begins to lecture on Talmud and Kabbalah. And the way they, the Mekubalim describe it, there is such an immense overflow of wisdom. There's, there's, there's this unprecedented flow of Kiddusha in the world... Um, and some explain that's why it can't be contained if he were to write it, he doesn't try that's why the Rav Haim Vital's accomplishments are, are huge, are immense um, he actually never published a sidur and his students didn't either um, there's a tradition that said that the what's called the Nusach HaRizal or the Nusach Sephard is his but that's simply a tradition there's no, no way of proving that uh, they explain the fact that he died a young death at, 38, at the age of 38 is as follows. Rav Chaim Vikal, L'Shem Shemayin, invited other mukubalim to hear the Arizal's shiurim. And in the shiurim he was revealing his secrets. And some of these students were not worthy. And as we said, Kabbalah in the wrong hands is a toxic, toxic potion. Uh, that could be that could be fatal, and in this case, rather than jeopardize the world, a Kaddish took the Arizal's neshama. Apparently, he had done his job, and if he'd stayed and revealed more, it would have been it would have been uh, too dangerous. Um, some give a similar explanation. There was in modern days a popular figure associated with Kabbalah, Rav Arya Kaplan, who died at the age of 48. And some say that he may have translated a lot and maybe was taken early first in the similar spirit of the Rizal was taken early that not everything uh, we're going to hear from Renach medal of Koz, that not everything that um, is thought should be said and not everything that's said should be written and not everything written should be published and not everything published should be read and yet we see there are a lot of people writing a lot of nonsense Right. So, And out there in the world, you take lofty ideas, not, the world is not always capable of receiving them. This is an introduction. We're just getting started. So I'm hoping that those of you who are here at least got at least some of the foundation of some Kabbalistic ideas. We're going to take these and apply these, especially as the Jewish people will be influenced by these ideas, especially if you want to understand the break between and, and and Misnagdim, in, in, in a couple centuries hence, which we're going to get to soon enough, uh, all of this is really part of the um, foundation that, that will be built upon. A few more figures from Zfat. Uh These are the days, I mean, I, of the different times that I would like to take a time machine back and meet the various gedolim, this is certainly one of the times and places Sfat uh, was simply on fire, was alive with, with Godless in these days. Um, it's the same time that Rav Moshe Alshech, one of the four... Aharonim we call the Kadoshim. didn't we say this last week? Who are the four, what, what is our tradition we call? We, we call the Alshech, Alshech HaKadosh. Who are the other three? The Shla Kadosh, the Orachim HaKadosh, and of course the Arizal HaKadosh. Um, the Alshech is totally different though. He's not who we expect to find in Tzfat. He writes a great perush on Torah and Navi. Um, it's all based, he used to give Sheer publicly. And it's based in his drushes that he gave publicly. He wrote up, he wrote up his uh, his drushes are um, in the same style I described the Abarbanel in similar terms. He asks, it's not for the modern ADD sets, people who have a hard time. They just like their um de- 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 Torah in little pithy sound bites. Uh, that you're not, you're not going to be able to function well with the Shech. He will ask several questions, and then take a pasuk and, and expound on the pasuk to answer all of the questions with a master stroke. He'll bring musr, he'll bring hashkafa, deep, deep ideas. And one thing that they're noted for is they lack almost any Kabbalistic content. And you think, wow, he's alive in spot in these days. And he explains, he says, yeah, I never, uh, my purpose was not to teach Kabbalah. There are a lot of great people who could do that. My, he, I'm going to quote him, I never aim too high. Just hasmada and the avayos of, of and Rava. I, mean, I just want to teach the basic ideas, the meat and potatoes of our Gemara, as, like, for example, Abayin Rava gave us. There's a story once that the Arizal comes to hear, uh, Rav Alshech, and ge- giving his public drasha on Parsha, the Parsha is parsha's Vayetze, when Yaakov goes to work by Lavan, and in the Parsha, in, in, in his drasha, the Alshech, Um, proposes a hundred different ways, based on the psukim, that Lavan cheats Yaakov. And in the middle of the she'er the Arizal gets up and walks out. Which you really don't, and there are different versions of the story. This is a version that I know, you can find alternate versions um, later in explaining, you know, that's not something usually you want. It, when giving your kunash shir to have the Arizal himself walk out. So it was explained that the Arizal said, oh no, I just left because the angels who had all come to hear the Alshech, expound on Parsha, they all left too. And I figured that that was my cue, I should leave. Um... Rather than making the al shech feel better, his words had the opposite effect. Of course, you know, now the angels all left. Why did the angels let leave? And the I'll explain that too. He said, because uh, for anybody lesser, this would have been a wonderful shear, but uh, for somebody of your stature and greatness, um, the angels thought maybe that you chose a hundred different ways that love uncheated Ya'akov. Maybe there was a shtickle gaiva. You couldn't have stuck with three or four or 50, but you had to go a hundred different ways. Maybe that was showing off. And as such, they felt that, for you, uh, they felt that that was not worthy and they left, and so I left. Another great figure, slightly younger than the others, is Rav Elazar Askari, who actually moved to Tzfat. You have a lot of these stories where, like I said, Rav Susan was started in Morocco and he, 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 he came to Tzfat. Tzfat is the center of gravity, it's like a magnet. Everybody's drawn there because of the, uh, the, the immense personalities. So in Rav Elazar Askari came from Kushta, where's Kushta? in Africa Kushta Istanbul Constantinople oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Istanbul okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. right so he moves Sitzfat. Um, we have a tradition that he may have composed y- um, Yidid Nefesh he's the most common when asked who wrote Yid Nefesh most people cite Rav Lazar There are alternate versions. some say it was Rav Yehuda the author of the Kuzari others say it was Najara. Um, Rav Najara Rav Askari wrote a classic work called the Sefer Haredim which combines Halacha and Musr very much in the spirit of, the, of, of these days in Sfas. And the final figure from this period that I'm going to talk about is Rav Chaim Vital himself. Rav Chaim Vital lived from 1543 to 1620. I said that he was older than the Yerizal, and I'm wrong about that. He was younger than the Yerizal. He simply predated the Yerizal in Sfas. And he had other teachers before the Yerizal. Um, he actually learned from the Al-Sheikh when he was a boy. He was, um, the Alshech gave him smitha, in uh, 1590, um, you missed the smicha story, but there's a whole story of there was an attempt to restart the whole smicha process that had been terminated, and it was an aborted process. It didn't work. So we hear that they had smicha, but it never went anywhere. Uh, there were other later attempts in history as well. So he got he got this ill-fated smicha. Didn't do anything with it. He was one of the last to receive it. Um, he learned Kabbalah from Rav Moshe Cordovero, and then, of course, famously, most famously, his primary teacher in just in less than two years, from 1570 to 1572, with Uri And um, this we have from the Chida, who stood there by the Chida's grave. Almost uh-huh. done. Shall turn it exactly when the Shushan Shir has finished 24 brokings they know it backwards and forwards, and they want to show off the rest of the yeshiva, so they're going to come join us exactly at five to five, okay? Mazel tov. The Chida, um, the whose grave we stood by at the beginning of the tour of Har Manuchos a week ago today, remember the Chida? Yeah. yeah? So the Chida brings the following. Um, when when the Arizal came to Tzfat, and I mentioned this briefly when we were in Vary at the beginning of the year, when the Arizal came to Tzfat, um, Rav Chaim Vital went to go learn from him and could barely understand a word. It was so lofty, it was so above his head, even though Rav Chaim Vital was a formidable scholar himself, he didn't get it. So the Irizal took him down to the Kinneret, the Sea of Galilee. Anybody remember the story? They went on a boat, and when they got to a certain exact spot, the Irizal dunked a cup down into the water, handed it to Rav Chaim Vital, and said, Drink this. And uh, the Rav drinks from the water. He said, thank you very much. And then he said, you know, the sheer you were giving this morning, we were talking about this, that, and the other thing. Is this what you meant? And he explained the shear that he previously did not get. And the Reza said, yes. And he said, and the shir you gave yesterday, was this the pshat? And the Reza said, yeah, you got it. And Rav asked, what was in that water? And the Arizal said, "Oh, that was from the Bear of Miriam, you know, the famous well of water, the miraculous well of water that accompanied Amisrael in the desert for those forty years, and then Moshe Rabbeinu, after Miriam died, uh, sustained it. So that apparently moved to the Sea of Galilee. And if you know where it is, you too can understand the lofty secrets in the rizal's Um Certainly, the chiddush says that only a miracle explains how could a person." Any great person receive in less than two years all of Kabbalah, the whole tradition. Um, the, the Chida tells us that the Rizal only relies on Rav Chaim Vital; the others he disregards. Um, and after the Rizal dies, Rav Chaim Vital becomes the leader of Kabbalistic learning. Formally, everybody accepts him. He too has many many miracles, just like his Rebbe, that are associated with him. Um, we learn Rav Chai Vital points out something very important, that the use of Kabbalah, specifically if you use any of the Kodesh Baruch Hu's Shemos HaKidoshim, holy names, um, the person who uses them either becomes a Meshumad, becomes, goes off the derech, in other words, becomes totally fried, or ultimately, if he uses one of the names incorrectly, his sons go off the derech, or he says he becomes poor or he dies suddenly, or his sons die suddenly. Um, I would just maybe paraphrase, just say, don't try this at home, kids. Um, in 1571, he joined the Arizal in one of his, in being Misgarish and the Kibre Tzaddikim, and they went, it's a story I like to tell, just south of Tzfas, they went to a kevr of Rebiyanai, the late, um, one of the late period Tanaim, down in akhbara and when they get there, the Arizal said, Rabbi has a message for you. He warns you, he cautions you um, not, to, not to get involved in rachilus and not to speak a sicha taylor, not to uh, have any false idle conversations. You should be careful with this. It's striking that this should come from Rabbi Rav, Rav, Yanai. Rabbi is one of the early sources in Shas for the Easter of um, Lashon Hara. It's Rabbi if you remember, we did this a couple months ago, it's Rabbi Yanai who says, who, who, who darshes the psukim, or he, he, he finds a merchant who darshes the psukim, Miyan Isha Chaim, who teaches the secret of life is to keep your, guard your tongue from evil, and he passes that on to Rav Chaim Vital. Rav Chaim Vital um, moved shortly after the Rizal died, he moves north to Damascus, and that's where he lives most of his life, and that's where he's buried. Um, he completes there his monumental work called Eitz Chaim. Uh, and he also writes a lot. He writes halachic shaddas and shuvas, he writes kidushi manchas, and is the primary source. Um, when I, as a tour guide, I go around Erez Israel and I try to identify who said what, if it's an identification, he'll say well, it was the Arizal, but we don't have a source in Eitz Chaim Vital, then it's questionable. Doesn't mean I don't, I it out of him, but it's, it's highly suspicious. Why did, uh, if it were true, if it was truly the Arizal, why would Rav Chaim Vital not bring it down? Um, Tomorrow, as Rosh Hashem, we're changing gears altogether. The Jews now, at this point in history, are definitively gravitating eastward. So we're gonna follow them in their eastward move to uh, Poland and later to Russia and see, see what those communities are like. Go ahead, everybody.